0: Today's episode is brought to you by BCB Group. You're gonna be hearing more about them later on in this interview, which begins right now. I'm joined by the one and only Macro-Alf, that is Alfonso Pecatiello, proprietor of the Macro-Compass-Alf. Welcome to Forward Guidance.
1: Hey, Jack, we play home today, that's cool. All in the Blockworks family.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna be giving you some T-balls. (laughs)
1: Well, let's see what what you can do. I'm waiting. Let's see if we can deliver some decent values to the audience.
0: Let's do it. Alf, I wanted to start by, you know, maybe we can put a chart up of S&P 500 relative to, let's say, TLT. Normally, TLT, long-term bonds, they're supposed to be a hedge. When stocks sell off, the economy is slowing down, bonds are doing well. The opposite has happened. Stocks have sold alongside bonds and investors who you know, have looked at bonds as a hedge have uh, been sorely disappointed. What's been going on here?
1: So I would say one of the main reasons is that stocks are selling off because bonds are selling off, which is a very interesting setup, right? We are not used to this over the last 10 to 12 years. There's always been an inverse correlation between the two for most of the time. And that's not been the case recently because the Federal Reserve told us they wanted to tighten financial conditions. And so anything that is included in the financial condition basket has to sell off, basically, one way or another. And so, uh, or has to revert towards tighter conditions, which means the dollar credit spreads, nominal and real interest rates and equities, those are the components of most financial condition indices, have to move in order to move the financial condition index tighter. And so that means nominal yields have to go up, real yields have to go up, uh, credit spreads have to widen, equities have to sell off, the dollar has to get stronger on a trade-weighted component. Those are all the, the components. That's what the Fed has told us extremely clearly and vocally since I think the first hints were December last year, November, December last year, they became much more um, you know, explicit with this message about January this year in the press conference. And so, well, then basically everything that is in the financial condition index basket gets correlated. Uh, Correlation, if there were inverse correlation between these assets, they tend to disappear because the Federal Reserve is targeting that measure, the financial condition index to move up. And so all the the, um, components have to contribute to that move.
0: Right, so we look at the uh, financial conditions index, there's a Goldman Sachs, and there's the, the, the Fed has its own metrics. And it's basically four things. It's the dollar, it is risk-free rates, you know, treasury really? yields, credit spreads, and equities, as as you say. So the dollar has exploded higher because the ECB and the Bank of Japan are are uh, being very dovish relative to the Federal Reserve. So interest rate differentials dictate, you know, money goes to where it's treated the best, or so they say. Uh, risk-free rates. They've exploded higher because the Federal Reserve has, via forward guidance, indicated that it's going to be hawkish, similar, like, for the same reason. And then we go to the sort of the private markets of credit spreads and the equity market. And the equity market, S&P 500, roughly, I'm going to guess right now, it's down 19%. We're recording the morning of of May 12th. So about 1% away from being officially in bear market territory. NASDAQ already in bear market territory. And credit spreads... Really, really haven't blown out that much to, to 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 me. How far away do you think we are to a point where the, it will satisfy the Federal Reserve's des, uh, um, you know penchant for t- t- uh, uh, tightening financial conditions?
1: Well, we look at the Federal Reserve targets here. That they are maximum employment and um, inflation, and inflation expectation around two percent. And so they need to satisfy those. And they have been very clear that the demand is now skewed towards inflation target because maximum employment is just there by the way they measure it they they just don't look at labor force participation rate they just forget about the labor supply dynamics so they look at unemployment rate and they you know they look at job vacancies against um the amount of unemployed people uh, in the labor force and they find that there are two job vacancies per each unemployed person. So it's like, wow! I mean, like, uh, it's extremely tight. There's a lot of job openings out there. There are not so many unemployment, unemployed people. U uh, three is extremely low, and all of that, right? So that part they're absolutely not worried about, not at all. They they, they find the labor market to be very strong, and so their focus moves to inflation and inflation expectations. So it, it is very simple. They will consider job done on financial conditions tightening when literally we will have inflation prints down and inflation expectation down across the board to levels that they consider to be more acceptable within their mandate. And so we just had the last inflation print, uh, Jack, yesterday. We are recording on Thursday. It was Wednesday yesterday, CPI report in the US. And I, ha- I have to hear people that say, yeah, but inflation slowed down. Yeah, of course it slowed down, obviously. I mean, where do you want it to go? It was 8.5% year-on-year. Thanks God it slowed down on a year-on-year basis. But here the point is that the summary of economic projections by the Fed has inflation, core inflation, to slow down to 4% year-on-year by year-end. And in order to get there, core inflation needs to print on a month-on-month basis, on average, around about 0.2% between now and year-end. And yesterday, core inflation printed at 0.6%. Month-over-month month over month that's three times as much as necessary to have this low down back to the four percent area where the fed will feel like okay we got there and the next year we go to three two and a half and then we're getting back to where we need to be um if you print three times large and then you look under the hood of the month on month print and you see that price pressures are broadening you have services inflation month on month x energy service prices, so really the sticky core stuff. I'm talking about shelter inflation. I'm talking about that kind of stuff. It printed at 0.7% percent month on month That's the highest month on month print since 1990. 1990, that's 32 years, month on month 0.7%. That is basically, a message, I think, that the durable goods price increase that have been most have been lion's share, the price pressures between 2021 and now are obviously receding, but the inflationary pressures are now broadening to the stickiest component of the inflation basket. So not only the pace of change months on months was much larger than the one necessary to bring it back to. by year end, but also the composition of of these inflationary pressures have been broadening a bit. It was expected that shelter inflation would pick up, but not to the extent it has picked up. And so I think that makes the Fed not extremely happy with what's happening overall. And yeah, the S&P is down 20%. Yeah, the dollar is stronger. Sure, interest rates are higher. Credit spreads are mildly wider, I would say, in this environment. But there is no Fed put. There is no level at which they will say... Well, I'm happy here. They're only happy if literally they start to see results from an inflation perspective, which means not only inflation is going down, but it's going down at least at the pace they projected to go down. And the composition of these inflationary pressures is not as sticky as it has been over the last report. So I don't see the the guys stopping at a point where, is S&P 4,000 the problem? Is S&P 3,600 the problem? it's just not relevant unless inflationary prints start to become to, to behave like the fed wants or markets stop functioning well jack and that means the repo market breaks uh, companies lose access to the credit market completely and then there is a trade off then the fed has to go you know and decide Where do they stand? But we are nowhere there. And a price level on the S&P will not change their mind because their objective is not the S&P. Their objective right now is to make sure that inflation slows down as they want it to slow down, and inflation expectations slow down too.
0: Alf, where are we on your macro
1: compass? So we're sitting in quadrant four for a while now, basically since the beginning of the year, December last year. It's when I made the update that we were in quadrant four which is the so-called get out of everything quadrant <laughs> in my mm-hmm. assessment. It's it's the, the most complicated uh, quadrant to manage from an asset allocation perspective. Nothing works when you are there. And uh, you get there if credit creation is decelerating and if the relative monetary stance is getting tighter. So let's recap what, what does that mean. The Compass is basically a simple four-quadrant asset allocation model. The two metrics are the global credit impulse and the relative monetary policy stance. And the Global Credit Impulse measures the pace of the credit injection to the private sector, where credit means money that the private sector can spend, not bank reserves, which are money for banks, not bank deposits that BlackRock or a pension fund has because they can't buy CPI um, inflationary items with this money, with these bank deposits. I'm talking about the amount of bank deposits sitting on the non-bank private sector sitting on my account on your account jack right and i look at the pace of change of this amount across the five largest um counters in the world so the acceleration or deceleration in this credit injection in the private sector tells me whether the private sector is more buoyant as literally more dry powder and more appetite and assets to spend, more credit that has been created effectively, at which pace this has been created, is very important to understand how earnings and inflation is going to develop from a demand side of things with a lag of 9 to 12 months. So the cool part of the credit impulse is that it's a a forward-looking indicator. It helps from that perspective. So it's a real economic grasp, let's say. And the other side of the macro compass is the relative monetary, monetary policy stance, which is. Well, monetary policy stance is easy to understand, is it easy, is it tight, but relative to what? And the two blends of measures I look at is relative to the real equilibrium level. So it's my estimate of the so-called R star. So what is the level at which the economy operates without overeating or cooling down? And so it's relative to that. And it's also the pace of change of this monetary policy stance that matters. It's not only the direction, but how quick Are we moving to easing or tightening? And I have several measures to blend in into this one single measure that then goes on the macro compass. And right now, we are on a credit creation deceleration. So on the left side of the compass and on the bottom side of the compass because we are tightening the monetary policy stance uh, higher than our star uh, across jurisdiction in a very fast way. And so you end up in the quadrant four. And the quadrant four, you can be long dollar if you're a non-dollar-based investor. You have to raise your cash allocation. You have to buy protection or risk assets. You have to buy vol. And sorry, but you can basically buy any asset. (laughs) That's how it works. And uh, so that's basically what I've been doing, raising cash uh, from a long-term asset allocation perspective, increasing my exposure to the dollar. But when it comes to tactical uh, global macro trading, I've been short here and there several risk assets where I see the best risk reward on a tactical basis. So right now it's credit. In, in, in most cases, I'm short LQDH, let's say um, um, an ETF that basically replicates investment grade corporate spreads in the US. And uh, I'm short BTP bund, so short Italian government bond spreads against German government bonds in Europe. Again, another expression of credit risk, basically, that has to increase and short the S&P 500, because I think the equity market will also suffer. If you can't be short and you're a long only investor, then it's just time to raise your cash allocation and exposure to the dollar.
0: Alf, how do you think about carrying a short S&P 500 position? Because you know, if you put a long-term chart of it from 1950 to, to now, you wanna be long on a long-term thing, but so you know, clearly you wanna have the S&P 500 sell-off and then you wanna cover your short uh, and buy it back at a lower price. You, know, you don't wanna be short this thing forever, right? Yeah.
1: No. And it's a great question. So time horizons are important, and risk management is important, too. So I have two books, basically. One, it's a medium to long-term mass allocation book. The other one is a tactical, uh, short to medium-term, long-short macro portfolio. And so the time horizons are different, and the risk management is different, too. And so from a tactical perspective, what I've been doing there is just, you know, I'm short the S&P 500, I generally target a two standard deviation move on a monthly basis in my um uh by the way I size positions so that meant you know from 4400 where I entered the short for 4000 was the first target if I hit the first target like I did, then I move the next target lower. I also move my stop loss lower. It, it becomes you know, basically a profit target and you move it in a trading fashion. Because if you're right, you should let your profits run, right? And if you're wrong, otherwise you're going to be stopped out by a move against you. And that's how I think about my short term um, sizing. Basically, I look at the underlying volatility of the asset. I size it in a way that my stop loss loses maximum, a certain percent percentage of my assets. So it's all designed to uh, risk manage tactical positions. From a long term perspective, it's a different thing. And you are right, because ultimately people are paid to take risks. They are not paid to be short risk assets. They're not paid to be in cash. Risk premia are harvest if you're long risk assets, not if you're short or neutral risk assets. You are not paid to sit on your bank account and, and earn and, you know, and, and deliver and take no risks. So from that perspective, it's a more nuanced exercise that really depends on the risk levels, on the age of the investor, and also on the um, defensive asset they have on the portfolio. And there, from a very long-term perspective, it's very simple. The returns in the equity market, Jack, are effectively the sum of the dividend yield that you get in. It actually contributes pretty little to the returns over time. And then it's the change in valuations and the change in earnings. Uh, the earnings growth basically and the change in valuations that delivers long-term equity returns and at the moment if you look at um i mean earnings people always say yeah the the stock market is overvalued but earnings in u.s companies have grown at a very rapid pace over the last 10 years we're talking about double digits growth on average for quite a span of time which obviously delivers positive returns it skews your returns to the right because you already start from a almost double digit earnings growth every year then you have a positive dividend yield on top of that. In most of of your buying points, you will have achieved a positive dividend yield. So the change in in valuations obviously explains the rest of the the return. And at the moment, we are at valuations in the S&P. If I look at 12 months forward valuations, we are like at, I think, 16 or something in 12 months forward PE, which makes it for earnings yield of, what is that? Let let me reverse the number. It's gonna be like 5.5%, something like that in nominal terms. And so you have to ask yourself if five and a half percent is a decent return, um, adjusted for inflation as well. So you should look at real terms. And you know you might want to argue that over the, the very long term this is not a terrible entry point. But again, it depends from your risk appetite and and your assumptions. But you're right. I mean, it's a different risk management. It's a different exercise and different time frames.
0: Right. And and markets overadjust you know, on the on the way up and on the way down. So just because it may be a a more attractive entry point than let's say a year ago in S&P 500, it doesn't mean that it's it's a bad short. Now, Alfonso, I feel like your bearishness on risk assets, particularly the S&P 500, comes from uh, the slowing of the business cycle, the slowing of growth, uh, as mapped sort of indirectly by this, the, the, the slowing of credit creation, uh, but I feel like there are people who have come to an equity short like you that's been a very good trade from a different angle which is inflation and duration in other words i think that the value of cash is going to decrease it's you know eight, it's 8.3% less valuable than it was a year ago so therefore assets that are long duration where they're going to hold that cash for a long time before they return it to me and generate earnings I want to be short those so that will be you know 20 year bonds 30 year bonds it will probably be Tesla because you know Tesla's profitable uh, but most of the money it's going to make is far in the future it's going to be companies like I'm just going to make the, you know a uh, quantumscape like a, a space stocks where they're trading at you know a thousand price to sales uh, those stocks have sold off even more than the S&P 500 and it's been quite drastic uh do, what do you think about targeting your shorts um, on, towards that area of, of the market?
1: It's a fair point. So obviously, I expect earnings to deliver below consensus, unless consensus. So that's because credit creation has basically collapsed since summer 2021. And so with the lag of nine to 12 months, you end up at having economic activity slow down as well. That's uh, how the credit impulse works. And so earnings, I suppose, they will print at much lower levels than our expectation, but most of the short that is delivering the returns is not earnings uh, under delivering so far, is valuations being repriced very aggressively. And that's exactly because of what you said. And that's part of the reason why I'm short. And so your question is why you're not short the NASDAQ and you're short the S&P 500, basically. well, the reality is that, yeah, I mean, being short the Nasdaq will work as well probably would have worked better on a risk-adjusted basis. I was just looking for a way to express the short in a very liquid um, instrument that has an underlying future that I can trade. Um, the Nasdaq against S&P was a second derivative of the trade. I mean, the first derivative was be short equities and then which index do you choose effectively to do so? Nasdaq would have worked better. It's the same reason why also crypto is selling off. Uh, it's it's. Um, speculative, um, let's say, high beta uh, valuation-intensive assets, right? And once you bring real rates from negative 1.5% to positive 0.7% very quickly, then you effectively give um, people an alternative and a discounting rate, which is completely different in in inflation-adjusted terms than it was a year ago, that obviously moves the needle for capital allocation. It makes people much less... um, you know, uh, prone towards allocating their capital to high valuation, high beta assets than it was simply because the alternative, which is to buy risk-free Real interest rates instruments like treasuries yields much better than it yielded a year and a half ago. it's, uh, It's right. So the reason why I didn't go short NASDAQ and I went short SMB instead is because I was lazy and I didn't do that other calculation on top, which could have delivered some additional returns. But, hey, the first derivative of the trade is still working. So, so far, so good.
0: This episode is brought to you by BCB Group, Europe's leading provider of crypto-friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space. They also provide trading services, allowing you to trade FX and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale. They specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it. And that is exactly what BCB group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com Jack. That's bcbgroup.com Jack. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Oh, definitely. And what about IWM, uh, the Russell 2000 small cap companies, which a lot of people typically think means value, but it doesn't always mean value stocks
1: no so the uh, russell is basically composed by a bunch of crappy balance sheet metrics companies uh so i don't know exactly how to define value in here what i see within the russell 2000 is a bunch of companies that are dependent on strong cyclical economic activity obviously so those were ones that delivered huge returns for example when um in the second half of 2020 beginning of 2021 right where we had the reopening where we had the cyclical strong pickup in the economy and where we had a commodity monetary policy that made sure to basically uh, hide the weakness in the balance sheet that these companies have. And now you have exactly the opposite, right? So you have a, a slowdown down in the growth impulse. So we're still growing. I mean, people always confuse uh, the pace of change with the direction. Yes, we're still growing, but the pace of change has been slowing down in terms of growth since summer last year. So from that perspective, that they're not supported by that. And on top of that, having a weak balance sheet, often pretty over-levered and all of that, and having to face refinancing rates, which are completely different than a year and a half ago, that's that's been a situation that has been, I think, not covered very well. Like If I look at Europe uh, and I look at the five-year um, yield on um, junk corporate issuance, high-yield issuance, so below investment grade European companies trying to refinance their business model, Jack. They are paying about 7.5%, last time I checked, which is the highest level to refinance their business model since um, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe 2012. If you exclude the COVID um, uh, spike, which lasted for a few weeks though, eh? so one thing is to basically have to refinance a portion of your business model for a few weeks at 7.5% or at 8%, but then things come back pretty quickly in terms of financing rate. The other thing is that if this, if the intensity and duration of these very high refinancing rates lasts for too long, you basically have a choice. You either have to deliver your, your business model because at 7.5% borrowing rates, it probably doesn't work, or you have to cut costs to make sure that you, know, you make ends meet, basically. And that has been a, um, a development that has been, I think, pretty much overlooked. And it's a combination of higher risk-free interest rate and wider credit spreads in the fringes, in the lowest quality, highly leveraged, uh, lower rated uh, uh, corporate bonds. And I think that's, a, that's an important signal from markets that credit is becoming tighter for quite a lot of industries out there.
0: Yeah, so when companies borrow money, there's two layers that they are borrowing. There's the risk-free rate, treasury yield, government yield, and then there's a credit spread on top of this. You have a chart showing that spread that we can talk about. Uh, yeah, Alf, can you just quickly explain that? And then also, you know, that, that uh, ties into your short on LQDH. Mm-hmm.
1: So basically, uh, when a corporate decides to refinance, they issue a bond and say they pay, let's talk about the five-year Europe, for example, seven and a half percent. Okay, so what that means is that you have a, there are two components in the bond yield, as I explained on uh, the Bond 101 um, series on the macro compass. You can decompose bond yields in interest rate risk and credit risk. And the interest rate risk uh, will basically be in this case, to make it very simple, let's say um, German, Government bonds, because you have to look at basically the risk-free interest rate that is prevalent in that jurisdiction. And in Europe, generally, Germany is supposed to be the the most, the closest proxy to a risk-free fixed income investment in Europe. And so you will have to look at German government bond yield for the same ten or let's say five years, and then you will have to look at the difference between the five-year junk yield and the German government bond yield, and you will obtain the so-called corporate credit spreads over the German benchmark, right? And so at the moment, the 7.5%, the the, the total absolute yield has gone up to 7.5% as a combination of German government bond yields have gone up, so the risk-free part of the interest rate component has moved up but also credit spreads have widened on top of it at the same time and that basically make, means that even if um, corporates would decide to swap away the interest rate risk which can be done via swaps so basically they issue the gov- the, the corporate bond and then they go to the market and they say please i want to hedge the interest rate risk right so i don't want to i don't want to have losses or gains in my balance sheet that are driven by changes in interest rates after I issued the bond, I just want to lock in, you know, a a credit spread. I know I have to pay a credit spread on top of Germany because I'm a junk corporate, I'm not the German government, let's lock that one in. And so it's important to look at both components, but credit spreads are obviously the the most important driver for uh, for these corporate bond issuers. And they have been uh, widening as well pretty aggressively. As you said before though, if you look at the volatility adjusted widening in these credit spreads, uh, I mean, they have moved. But in a volatility-adjusted basis, stuff like the dollar or equities or interest rates, they have moved much more in a volatility-adjusted basis than credit spreads have. And that's why I think that if you are looking for paying trades in the Financial Condition Index that still have to... Uh, unravel then credit spreads are one of the the targets you should try and go for because they have moved but not as much in uh, volatility adjusted terms as other components have moved like the dollar or interest rates or equities
0: alf that is such a good point i just want to hammer that home people looking at this chart now the blue line is german bunds risk-free rate and the orange line is kfw a, a german uh issue I, I i don't know it let's just pretend that the blue line is treasuries and that uh the, orange line is investment grade bonds. So if you buy LQD or you short LQD, you are going long both of these things. And therefore, when the blue line goes up, you lose money. That is what has happened this year. When people say, oh my God, the bond market is screaming, HYG is sold off, high yield. It's it's so much so much of it, Alfonso, you know this. So much of it has been the risk-free rate. And what you are shorting with LQDH, LQD uh, hedged, is you're only shorting that area between the orange and the blue and people say, Oh my God, the yield on this is the yield on that. Yeah. That's because the risk-free rate has gone out. If you just look at the spread, I mean, this is amazing. This is the option adjusted spread for triple C's. Look at, you know, you, you call this, this is, you call this a chaos. Like we were at four, over 40% in 2008 and now we're you know barely at 10%. It's, yeah. It doesn't seem that much. And then look at this, this uh, red is uh triple B, so the lowest uh, lowest investment grade, the -hmm. spreads are not that wide. I mean, they they have so much more to widen before the Federal Reserve panics and you have a liquidity crisis. I mean, it's just so much more, Alfonso. I completely
1: agree. So uh, (laughs) the LQDH and investment grade spreads, so only the credit spreads, they are at about 85 basis point. When I showed them, there were 70 basis point, which I deemed to be incredibly low in in the conditions we were about to face. But they have moved to 85 basis point. Okay, 15 basis point in credit spreads is a a good move. Like in standard deviation terms, it's about two standard deviations. Good. In the meantime, the dollar, the equity markets, and interest rates have moved by at least three standard deviations. So it's uh, basically the credit spread market is reacting, but as you show in this chart, Jack, it's pretty contained. And that makes as well the um, ability of these companies to refinance in markets still pretty okay, which means you know the Fed is not worried at all because if you're a levered up company and you want to refinance, yeah, you have to pay a bit more than you had to pay a year ago in credit spreads, actually quite some more, but it's still far away from a situation where credit markets are shut off. In late 2018, there was a period of, let me remember, I think 43 or 47 trading days in which high yield corporate issuers could not issue at all. The market was completely dry. If they, if you went by an investment bank to do a road show and wanted to convince investor to buy your stuff, they were like, sorry, no. What do you mean no? What is the credit spread at which you're gonna buy? No. The credit spread at which, which I'm gonna buy your issuance is no. I'm not gonna buy it. That was basically the feedback. You can see it in your chart as well that we had, you know the blue line for example the ccc back then uh, option adjusted spread went all the way up that was late 2018 i'm talking about right and at the moment right now there there is a price at which this these corporates can issue even high yield they can issue they they have to pay 400 basis point uh, in america and uh, investment grade have to pay 80 basis point but they can issue which means the credit market is still functioning and i think there is some more pain there to be had so if you short lqdh You don't care about where treasury yields are gonna move, which are a part of your LQD that is hedged away. That's why it's called LQDH. But you only care about the difference between corporate yield and treasury yields, which is basically corporate spreads. And that's what I wanna be sure.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And also we've had the biggest bond bonanza on record, at least in the States from summer of 2020 to the summer of 2021. I mean, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of bonds issued and you know, high yield bonds, investment grade bonds. They have a duration of three to seven years, so that money is still on the. So they don't need to be refinanced for a long time. And you know, you had commercial paper trading at negative yields. Like we've we've had a systematic problem of far too much money in the system. And yes, I agree with the bears. Judgment day is coming, and I you know I'm not constructive on risk assets because I think the Federal Reserve can continue to tighten, and I think the Federal Reserve will continue to tighten because I think the economy can take the pain, and I think the you know you, you need that in order to to dampen inflation, but. these things you you don't go from a bubble to a recession in a month
1: no indeed (laughs) and that's why i think there is more pain to come here we discussed about the incentive scheme of the federal reserve and a lot of people are telling me alf i mean you had your great rally here today they're doing very well on your tactile portfolio why don't you just take your chips off the table right because we are at a point where the fed will budge Look at 2018, they tell me. I mean, they they had to budget. We went down 20% in 2018, and at 20%, they just came in and they said, okay, uh, sorry guys, we made a mistake, and uh, we will pivot, which happened then in January 2019. Well, there is quite a difference. In um, December 2018, inflation expectations were below 2%, and realized inflation was around 2%. Now we have realized inflation, core inflation at 6.5%, and we have inflation expectation at the front end of the curve even after the repricing we had the commodity led repricing over the last week still at 3% and you know we have inflation expectation like if i look one year forward and i look at you know one year forward five year inflation expectation they are still around 3% as well so you know it's it's a very vastly different situation both because of realized inflation but also because of inflation expectation compared to 2018 the fed is not in a position to pivot and have a, a blink towards, you know, inflation and um, a wink towards financial conditions and try to ease the market. It's a materially different situation than 2018.
0: Yes. So let's go to this next chart, which shows the market pricing in relative cuts, uh, starting sometime in 2023. This is a, the Fed mm-hmm. funds futures curve uh, of the yield. A uh, Fed funds rate is the 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 30 uh, day rate, and then the euro dollar is like the three month uh, LIBOR rates. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you think the market is correct? Do you think that the the Fed, uh, the Powell pivot will come sometime in uh, summer
1: 2023? So uh, it's, a, it's a good question. And basically it is what I asked myself in today's article on the macro combus. it's called what if. And the what if basically is what if inflationary pressures are stickier than the Fed thinks. And again, it depends on the pace of the slowdown. Slowing down is not enough. Inflation needs to slow down. At or faster than the Federal Reserve expects, with a good composition, the to slowdown too, for them to take the feet of the gas pedal in terms of tightening, right? And so the market is in fixed income terms expecting, let's say, the inflation swap market is expecting inflation to print at five percent over the next twelve months on average. So it's higher than the Fed thinks they will be able to be able to achieve. But then, if you look at June twenty three. And you look at what's priced after that the inflation swap market is telling you we're going to slow down we're going to slow down to you know around three percent over time so still higher than the fed expectation but we're going to slow down which will make the fed you know relatively at ease with it which also means as you show in the chart that i put on the macro compass that the market implied expectation for fed funds future have a peak at about three percent and then they can slow accordingly as inflation starts to slow down back towards two and a half to three percent also the federal reserve will basically be able to take uh, some of the tightening away from markets it's a it's a very benign situation if you ask me jack i mean the pace of repricing in in the fed funds uh, euro dollars and all that has been pretty pretty sharp of course and implied volatility is also pretty large but if you look at the terminal rates they're, we're pricing like shy of 3% in nominal terms. And then we're pricing cuts coming in for 2024, which are what I call growth scare cuts. I mean, if, if the fiscal deficits are not there anymore and we stop the fiscal sugar rush and that credit creation is hampered because the private sector is under stress and they can't borrow at these real rates, which are so high compared to the past because their business model don't work. You're going to have a gross slowdown, and at some point this feeds in into lower aggregate demand and it feeds in into lower inflation and inflation expectation and therefore the Fed can ease. That's what the bond market is pricing in. And if you look at the what if scenario where inflation will remain stickier than the Fed expects, it's priced in and I explain in the article why that probability is at about 10 to 12%. It's, it's a pretty low probability. The bond market has made up their mind. It's ultimately going to be a... <laughs> hump i'm quoting lagarde a very less than transitory hump but as you say also the sun is transitory at some point it's going to cool down <laughs> the sun itself right so yeah. it's all about time frames and the bond market's like yeah it's a couple of years and then we're gonna trend back to you know two and a half percent
0: yeah so this uh futures chart that we're looking at it it's essentially showing the the future of money what will the price of money be in oh. you know january 2023 what about march 2024. And I've, you know, a lot, I've heard a lot saying, oh my God, there's an inversion in the Fed Funds futures, an inversion in the euro dollar futures market. This is The market is screaming panic. But uh-huh. I just did a little mental exercise yesterday and I made the realization, if there is, let's say that the the future, uh, the the forward curve, instead of being 10 years out, it was 100 years out. If there was uh-huh. never a, a buckle, if there were never, was never an inversion in the curve, that would show that the Federal Reserve would hike 100 years in a row. <laughs> you know what I mean? (laughs) Like at some point, yeah, you have to go through a cycle and uh, an inversion, uh, uh, the Federal Reserve backpedaling, it doesn't mean necessarily mean that uh, it's going to break something. I mean, I think it will in this instance, but it could be a soft landing, you know?
1: Yes. So the most important thing rather than um, the inversion itself is again, the pace of the hiking cycle and the pace of inversion that tells you something about how front loaded the hiking cycle will be how tough it will be and how the bond market thinks the reaction will be after the hiking cycle so it's rather you know the pace of this of this uh, you know increase and then decrease being priced in the fed funds which is relevant but most most importantly what is relevant is uh, long term forward rates and um, let's say terminal rates so you have to look down the cycle and there are drivers of front end rates as we discussed multiple times those are mostly due to the Fed action, right? So it's the market discounting future Fed action. But if you look down the road, like 10 year forward, 10 year rates, 10 year forward, 20 year rates, I mean, these are, the drivers of these are completely different. The drivers of these are long-term labor supply growth, productivity growth, and all, let's say, the the growth and inflationary long-term potential that the economy can take. And so plus, of course, a term premium and a risk premium attached to the fact that you're taking a risk by buying long duration rather than rolling over your short-term bonds. And, and if you look at that, this chart is now, I think, a month old or something. But now the forwards, the long-term forwards, have started to move up a bit. Which means you know, what's surprising is that the Fed is going to hike to 3%, then it's going to cut back. But before, as shown in this chart, the market had made up their mind that they have to cut back at 2%. Because that was the level that the economy could take, basically, uh, by producing long-term growth and long-term inflation in line with potential. Now, if you look at these long-term forwards, they've come up a bit which is more than, uh, in my opinion, expectation that growth and inflation are gonna be strong over the next few decades. It's what's called term premium or risk premium, which is basically uncertainty around what the Federal Reserve will have to do down the road. Like before the bond market was like, you guys are gonna hike, you're gonna break something, you're gonna have to cut back pretty sharply and you will have to settle below 2% because you know that's basically it. And now the bond market is slowly starting to think, okay, so you will have to hike. And then you'll have to cut, but am I really sure that you have to cut to two percent? Or do I am I more uncertain about that? And so maybe I'm assigning a slightly higher probability that inflation will remain sticky, that it will be it will settle the levels which are higher than two percent, that are maybe three percent. And if we settle there, then what's the Fed reaction function gonna be? Because we haven't lived with the Fed that has seen inflation stable around 3% for now some decades. We have seen inflation below 2% at one6 1.5%. That was core inflation in the US for the last decade. So we are not used to see the Fed deal with inflation at 3% on average, which makes the uncertainty over the long end of the curve perhaps a bit higher than it was before.
0: Long-term bonds, 10-year Treasury notes, 30-year Treasury bonds, have suffered immensely as a result of inflation for the duration reason we talked about earlier. At what point do you think that they become a buy? Because you have this long-term view of disinflation caused by demographics and debt. So long-term you're sort of oriented towards bonds and yet inflation is just destroying them day over day. So at at what point are you thinking about sort of going into bonds?
1: Um, Effectively when the Fed tells me to or when inflation tells me to which it, basically most of the term premium and risk premium in the long end of, uh, of the curve, which has been priced now is the uncertainty about the policy which is about to come, which means quantitative tightening. Again, we don't know exactly whether the Fed is gonna sell bonds as well. You know, They told us they won't, but there is some risk premium to be attached to that, right? And we also don't know If inflation ultimately is going to slow down, which is going to reinforce the slow down at which pace it is going to slow down and with which composition, which is going to reinforce, um, let's say, if it does slow down according to the Fed path, it's going to reinforce the medium central case scenario, which is that you go back to these long term structural trends. Labor supply growth in the US is going to be 0% year on year over the next decade and across the world is gonna be negative. So we're gonna have less people in the labor force in 20 years from now than we have today. Less people, I wanna stress that out. So that means the people able to produce economic output are gonna be less. And unless you have a productivity revolution, and again, people are like, yeah, yeah, but you know, we are productive. We, yes, we are. Every year we increase productivity rates by about one to one and a half percent. That's great. We not only keep the same productivity levels, we'll bring them up. Now, the problem is that if the labor force is shrinking, And we are levering up the economy more and more, Jack, then obviously the capital misallocation and the and the pace of change of this productivity will be you know, difficult to achieve in, in a meaningful, higher and higher and higher way, which makes long-term real growth, in my opinion, pretty shallow as a potential over the very long term. But now third-year bonds are being affected as well by, or 10-year bonds, by the uncertainty about the policy path in front of us, qualitative tightening, the stickiness of inflation. So for me here, bonds are a buy in basically two situations in one of these two or three scenarios i'm gonna now talk about a something seriously breaks in the repo in the credit market which makes the fed at least start talking about or considering uh looking at that angle as well which for now they're not looking at all completely so unless something breaks that's not gonna happen okay so something has not broken yet i don't fulfill that criteria the other one is If inflation slows down at the pace that the fed expects or more than that and the composition of the slowdown is also a friendly one then i know that the fed can take the 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 foot of the gas pedal which also lowers the uncertainty around the fed the the future path which makes me want to buy bonds because then i can focus again on the long-term trends because i see that it is unfolding the inflation story as the market thinks, which lowers the uncertainty down the road, which makes me more able to buy long-term bonds without having to to think twice about risk premium. And the third one would be, if growth slows down to levels that are so bad that it will make the Fed more certain about an inflation slowdown at some point. And at this stage, I don't think we fulfill most of these criteria. We don't fulfill any of those, I think, yet. Um, so I'm just, you know, being short bonds is tough for a guy that has a long-term disinflationary perspective. Um, so what I'm doing now, I'm just watching it from the window and I prefer being short risk assets, which I think it's a cleaner way to express my macro view.
0: I know a trade that you have used to express a view on fixed income as not being long or short the long end or long or short the the, uh, the short end of the yield curve, but uh, betting on the flattening of the spread between the 10-year and the 2-year. And that mm-hmm. obviously played out well, uh, so much so that you know maybe a month and a half ago, the 2.10 spread actually briefly went into inversion. Since then, we've steepened a little bit. Do you have a view on the 2.10 spread now?
1: Again, it will depend from... Um risk premium about uh, the fed policy going forward and what that means is if inflation let's say uh, jack prints another month higher month to month and again under sticky composition on on the um, on the inflation you know uh components and then what happens at that point is that the federal reserve has a choice either they decide to put themselves ahead of the curve or they decide to ignore the signals that inflation is broadening, and they just keep on with the normal policy tightening. Well, if they put themselves ahead of the curve, what it means is that the front end of the curve has to start repricing for terminal rates, which are much higher than 3%. Because if the Fed wants really to send a signal, a Volcker-like signal between uh, brackets, of course, uh, they need to put themselves ahead of the curve, which will basically um, signal to the market they are extremely serious, and then the front end has to reprice higher. And also, you know, that means they will likely kill the economy or kill something that will give bond market a certain certainty. They need to revert back pretty really fast. And then the curve flattens out. Alternatively, if they keep on playing the game of, yeah, we're going to do something, but ultimately, you know, we're going to just react linearly and it's going to be fine. And then maybe the market starts challenging this assumption that that's not going to be enough. If that's not going to be enough then you have to build risk premium across the curve which is what's been happening basically over the last two to three months together with the quantitative tightening uncertainty effectively and then you have this curve steepening now at the beginning of the year i was in flatteners because i understood that the reaction function from the fed was about to change very drastically and so they did surprise the market in a couple of press conferences by saying hey guys we are now serious we are going to do something. We're going to hike to 2.5% by year end. We're going to bring the terminal rate to 3%. And that caused, effectively, the market to, to consider the Fed to start putting themselves ahead of the curve, reprice the front end very much, and then you know the curve flattened in. Now, as always, what I used to do is I run a very profitable trade, but then I used to move my profit targets a long trend, it was going my way, so I moved the profit targets lower and lower. When I entered the trade jack, I had no idea the 10, two stands could invert so quickly. I entered the trade at 75 or 77 basis point. I had a target at 47. We hit it, then we go down 30, then we go down 20. I still have the trade on because it's working my way. And then when it went to negative five basis point, it then repriced sharply up, right? And then at that, at that point, I stopped out, which meant taking a very large profit at this stage. And again it is just a very systematic way of thinking about your trades you just move your profits as the trend is moving your way if i had a view on two stands now mate i would have a trade-on and i don't have a trade-on in two stands which means again i'm watching from the outside i am looking at the risk reward that the bond market and inflation swap market are pricing a very low probability that this time is different. And the what if scenario is priced in only at around 10% if you look at option inflation swap markets. So if you decide to be long bonds here, you are basically long the 90% probability distribution, which again- So you're short
0: the option that you're long. You're short the option that you're long.
1: (laughs) So then in that case, Jack, you are basically assuming that the 90% will turn out to be 100%. Cool. I mean, that, that can make you money, right? But I don't think the risk reward here warrants being long bonds until the three conditions or at least two of the three conditions I highlighted before uh, actually realize. And if instead of making uh, a certain amount, I will be making less because I entered later, then I have no problem. Again, I don't need to pick the top and I don't need to pick the bottom anywhere.
0: Alfonso, I'm very impressed because I know you were a deflationist, a disinflationist, and you still have that long-term bias, but you've seen the tables turn and you've now seen the opportunity in going long inflation swaps. Can you just speak to the value of being able to change your mind and you know owning buying a stock here, seeing it go down here and then shorting it here? Like, I feel like that's just, being able to change your mind is so valuable in this market.
1: I wish I was really good at that. I try my best not to be married to a narrative. That is the worst you can ever do in markets because there are no, as my friend Michael Gayet says, there are no mm-hmm. gurus, there are only cycles. And so in 2021, I was pretty bullish on several risk assets. Went well. Uh, by the way, I'm also wrong a lot of, of the times. I don't want to come across with the idea I'm always right. Absolutely not. I'm right 54% of the times I'm wrong. The rest, that's my uh, long-term. But you sized the
0: trades well. Like, yeah, you, you, like you were, you were short oil, like going into this year. And if you let that trade run, that would have been a disaster, but you got out so, of it, you know? Yeah.
1: yeah so it, it has been a small disaster because my stop loss is that basically tells me I am willing to lose X amount of my assets under management every time I'm wrong. And then I'm trying to be right more times than I'm wrong. And when I'm right, I'm trying to be right much bigger than the, the, the in terms of size, than the size that I stop myself out when I'm wrong. Now, changing mind is the, trait that I saw in the best hedge fund managers and friends that I know in the industry. These are guys that are like long bonds two months ago, for example, and then they can just literally turn short. And they are not emotionally attached to their position whatsoever, nothing at all. It's like, hey, facts are changing, I have my risk assessment, I have my dashboard, I have my indicators, things are changing, the risk reward looks good, I'm gonna take a position. But what do you mean, mate, you're a disinflationist. I mean, how can you be you know, looking at the chance that terminal rates are gonna be repriced higher? That's impossible. No, it's different timeframes. I mean, being a long-term disinfl- disinflationist in terms of growth and inflation over the very long term doesn't mean that the cycles cannot move in the meantime. And so you should be as nimble as you can and try to stick with facts rather than be married to a narrative. It is extremely difficult, but it is very valuable.
0: Brilliant. Alfonso, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you can uh, do it again. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Follow Alfonso uh, at MacroAlf. Watch his show on BlockWorks every Sunday, the Macro Trading Floor, um, uh, with Andreas Larson. where you guys, you guys. Take a rigorous approach to trading. You know, if I, if I actually I have been a guest, episode zero, um, where it's it's not just like what's your narrative. It's what's the trade. What are your stop limits? Like, you know, it's it's as if you're the hedge fund manager and a portfolio manager is proposing a trade. Um, so that airs on Sunday. You also have interviews on BlockWorks YouTube uh, called the Boiler Room that air on Tuesday. And of course, there's the Macro Compass. You know, if you've been uh, uh, making sure that your, your Macro Compass has been. Keeping investors who are lo- you know from being lost at sea uh people who have been following the compass you got you got follow the you know, alf I'm so happy that you've been so successful you, you deserve all of it
1: well jack uh normally. Interviewers ask me, like, hey Alpha, where well, if people want to find you, where? I mean, you did already all of that and better than I could have done. So thank you for that. And when it comes to the macro trading floor podcast that we just launched, it's called the macro trading floor for a reason. So Andreas and I have some fun and we we discuss market developments. But then when the guest comes in, he has to come up with a trade idea. He can blabber about his macro thesis as everybody does, and I do as well. But ultimately, it's all about where do you put your money? And we try to have some fun too uh it's it's a pleasure to collaborate with blockworks on that podcast and on everything else and uh thanks jack for the endorsement i appreciate that
0: thank you alf